you are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 70 for October 14th, 2015. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we discuss a couple of recent emails that we've received. One is regarding a person that wants to become an archaeologist but wants to possibly finish a business degree first, and the other is about interview questions. How should you prepare? What questions can be asked? And how do you know which questions they will ask? So, fire up your email and send us a question, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Joining me today is Doug in Scotland. Hello. And Stephen in Calgary. Hello. All right, guys. So today we're going to talk about a couple of emails we received actually quite some time ago now, a few weeks ago, um, I think over a month ago. But we're just getting to these now and we're going to talk about them. One is uh, one is regarding education and the other one's regarding somewhat of a, a follow-up email, um, a follow-up to a podcast that we had, episode 63 in the past, about a job posting. So I'm going to read the first email, and then we're going to talk about it. So first off, it says, my name is William. Uh, I am a senior business management major at the University of Central Arkansas. Recently, I found a strong interest in anthropology and want to carry it over into my career. I've been doing my research, and from what I've learned from you and many other internet archaeologists, my most practical job outlook is in the CRM field. We'll wait to pick this apart until later. (laughs) Um, Here's my question. I've decided to finish my business degree, good, uh, since I only have two semesters left, but my school just recently created an anthro degree degree that only requires 33 course hours. Would it be to my advantage to stay one extra year and graduate with a double major in business management uh, slash anthropology prior to applying for a graduate anthropology program? My main interest is doing field work, so I would think an anthro degree could be used if I ever want to keep quiet about having a master's and just do field work. Also, since it would only take two semesters, it really wouldn't be out of the way. Any advice is greatly appreciated. And then he says, thanks for the videos and podcasts. So, all right, uh, let's kick this off, this discussion. Um, you know, first, my my real kind of flag right here, aside from basically just having a strong interest in anthropology and wanting to really look at CRM, those you really need a, a better idea of what CRM is before you go into something like this, I think. But I want to jump over to... Um, the recent, recently created an anthro degree that only requires 33 course hours. I don't know. It, it depends on, for me, I, and I was talking to some other people about this. If you want a check in the block that says, I received this degree, and then you're going to go on to graduate work or something like that, and that's okay with you, then great. But if you're going to try to do 33 course hours in a brand new program in two semesters with all the papers and writing and things like that, you're either going to half-ass it and not learn anything, or you're going to fail. That would be my guess. Like I said, if you're fine half-assing it and just getting the piece of paper, maybe that's good for you. I don't know. But it, to me, one of those two things is going to happen. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's even going to be possible to do 36 hours in two semesters. Right, um, 33 hours, but so, still. Yeah, okay, well, 30-some hours. Because if this is a brand-new major, ah, I don't know how it's set up, but typically a lot of, you know, a lot of university courses only run one semester. Right. And, you know, sometimes they conflict. And so if you're trying to get all 33 into two semesters, there's going to be a chance that 
one, those classes will be conflict and that won't be possible. That's and two, point. sometimes courses run every other year. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if there's a brand new course, they're usually not designed to be done, you know, all 33 hours in a single year. I'm not sure. Uh, and I'm only going to go from my undergraduate experience, but at my school for an undergrad, there was no way you'd be able to get all the credits done in a single, even a single year over mm-hmm. two semesters, just because all your required courses didn't run every year. So I'd, I'm not sure if it's even physically possible to do that. Right. Yeah. It, well, even if, even if all the courses were offered, uh, during those two semesters, and he was able to take 33 course hours in two semesters, I still don't think it's even possible. I mean, that's a lot of work. You know what I mean? Well, it, I mean, because you, you're, so I don't know exactly, but if you're doing the average about 15, 16 course hours a semester, that's, you know, that is, that's a normal for about two semesters. That's not, it would be just pure anthropology, but if you were to look at a normal undergraduate degree, um, you would be taking some of your core classes as well and stuff like that. So it mixes it up. But I don't think it's going to be any extra work than what a normal year would be. Um, it's just going to be nothing but anthropology. Well, I think I think you hit the nail on the head, though. This is all anthropology, and it's the core courses where normally you'd be splitting that up with some other courses that you're taking. You might do these 33 major hours in the last two years of school and split that stuff up. But these 33 course hours, if these are the these are the, the upper-level courses required for the degree, right? So they're probably all courses that require some sort of paper or research paper or something. And I think the extra work outside um, of these courses is going to really take up a lot of time. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying is it worth it at this point to do it that quickly? You know what I mean? It would also be very interesting to try to do it in a sense that Again, uh, I can only speak for my undergraduate experience, but there was there was they broke up our courses into hundred levels. So one hundred level course, two hundred level course were right. freshman, sophomore level, three hundred and four hundred level were your junior and senior year. You kind of had to take the one if you have no prior anthropology experience or archaeology experience, you kind of had to take the one hundred level courses mm-hmm. and then take a more advanced two hundred. And then before you could get to the 300, so you could understand all the different concepts. Um, I'm not, even if they ran all the courses, I'm not sure if you'd be able to, I'm trying to imagine a, a period where you could take, well, probably four to five courses all at once in the first semester. There were all beginning courses that didn't build on anything else. And then taking the second semester all the more advanced courses that built on everything that you did the first um, first semester. So, I mean, you, you're learning basic concepts like stratigraphy, carbon dating, you know, your, your 100 level courses that you kind of need that background information before you even go into anything else. Right. Um, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not seeing this as a, as a realistic, I don't think, the courses would line up, line up um, enough, and I don't think you'd be able to get enough of the basics in your first semester. Like, I'm not sure if there's enough basic courses. Like, you, if you took archaeology this, I don't know, southwest, southeast, you'd probably need a 100-level course before you did that. And I'm not sure how many basic courses you could get, five or six of them, 
in the first semester and not struggle yeah. with parts that you're supposed to have already learned being taught. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. Steven, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I largely agree with Doug, man. Just how you could squeeze it all in, into two semesters would be, you know, I, I can't imagine how it would be done. Right. Um, so my my thoughts are more along the lines of, you know, if he is thinking about going on to grad school, you know, what is, you know, what is the absolute bare minimum that he would need to get to that grad school or, you know, start out as a field tech for a while. And, and you know, to that, you know, it, it would be, I think he'd be better served instead of trying to do them all, which might not even be, you know, possible. He might not be able to register for them all. Um, he, he might be better served by, you know, getting his field school, uh, taking the, the intro classes for you know, the, the various subfields and, you know, maybe uh, methods and theory for archaeology or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going out and being a field tech for a while. Um, that might serve him a little bit better. Um, you know, the, the other possibility is, you know, or not possibility, but, you know, he should really be talking to uh, places for grad school. Uh, about you know what they would require as bare minimum to get into the program, right? That's a good uh, you point. Know, for, for a lot for a lot of programs, um, especially if they're specifically master's oriented programs, they don't necessarily need, um, you know, like an anthro major as, for your undergrad. It doesn't have to be an anthro degree, but they might still have, you know, minimum coursework or whatever. So um, that would be something to consider. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that. Field school, particularly, um, you know, if you think about CRM, then a good field school and maybe a good lab class yeah. uh, would, would, you know, almost be required, you know, to get the job, which is what he would need to pursue first, I would think. I think Ruckus agrees with you. Doug? Yes. <laughs> yeah, a possible option is if you might think about minoring with with a one-year a minor in anthropology, archaeology seems much more realistic. I'm just thinking about trying to get all the courses in there, but mm-hmm. or even a semester, he might he might be able to pull off a minor. And to be honest, a minor with a field school, I would say probably puts you pretty close to competitive with most other people who might major in anthropology. A minor with a field school and a business degree? I'd hire him right now just for the business side of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think because in a sense, if you did a minor, but a minor in with a huge focus on archaeology. So again, mm-hmm. I can only speak from my experience, but and maybe you guys could answer this as well. But when you get a – there's very few archaeology degrees in the States, um, like pure archaeology degrees. So most of them are anthropology. So out of those 33 – Possibly only, you know, 15, 20 of those course hours are actually going to be in archaeology. You're going to have to take some cultural anthropology or biological anthropology. There's lots of other things that you usually have to do to get a major in anthropology, even if your focus is archaeology. And if you had a minor, you might be able to just get all the archaeology courses. And that would give you almost as many hours as you would... um, if you had got a major in anthropology, uh, as many hours in archaeology, 
I, again, you know, give or take, and you're you're losing out on some of the the great things that comes from having an anthropology degree, and that you've you've been exposed to cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, linguistics, or something along those lines. But in terms of if he's really really interested in CRM, a minor will probably give you about as many course hours as you'd get with a major with a focus on archaeology. And um, yeah, a field school is probably more important in terms of doing CRM. Well, and one thing I would say about the minor is, uh, you know, if you went into CRM and stayed in CRM and wanted to move up in CRM, having only a minor and not the full anthropology degree could provide, could potentially cause some issues with Secretary of Interior Standards, you know, uh, some some jobs that would require that. But he'd have to have a, a master's in that anyways. So well, I, mean, I mean, some stuff requires terms- a BA, though. Which does it? Yeah, oh, doesn't it for, for certain agency jobs? Like, um, uh, aren't the minimum requirements of, like, Forest Service jobs and things like that a BA? For, like, field tech? Yeah, for field tech. Uh, it, 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 it differs. Um, I don't think they get that specific. I think they say it depends on what agency and how they word it. But a lot of them say a degree and, or in a relevant field. Mm-hmm. So he, he po- might be able to play the business slash minor in anthropology might be enough. Um, it, it depends how specific they get, but I've seen lots of advertisements that just say be educated to degree level. Um, and that doesn't, they don't really, I don't think they're very picky on no, no, your degree has to say this. Cause you know, across the States you end up with some weird stuff. So some programs are, you get a major in anthropology and sociology because the departments are together, even though your focus is on archaeology. Um, so you end up with somewhat odd um, degree names. And some people get university studies where they've built a, their own archaeology degree. So I don't think that's going to – that's only only be for federal jobs. In terms of permitting and the Secretary of Interiors, they don't – the only thing I've really seen is you know for – PI level or, you know, managing a project, the master's requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, and in various, well, like historic preservation, you need to have, you know, background in historical preservation. But I don't, I don't think there's, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But yeah. I'm pretty sure there's nothing saying that you absolutely have to have an undergraduate degree in archaeology to do anything. Well, I'd like to, it'd be nice to know that because I I would be under the misunderstanding on that if that's not the case. So that would be interesting. Well, the, the other thing is there's plenty of jobs that don't require that. Uh, I think most field tech jobs um, require a field school. Um, you know, and it, it, it varies. Uh, up here, a lot of people complain about not just field schools, but, you know, do you, how good are you at soils? How good are you at uh, other technical aspects? So, you know, those would be things to consider looking into, even if he doesn't do the minor, um, you know, aiming at the technical aspects of artifact identification, uh, field work, um, lab analysis, um, at least to a limited degree, uh, soils, that, that sort of stuff. Well, and you, you brought up a good point, Stephen. Field schools brings up a, uh, a whole other can of worms for him, too, because depending on what you want to do, Obviously, not all field schools are created equally. So, you know, going if he goes to a field school in, say, Belize, he might see some great stuff. But 
it might not teach him a lot is from a CRM standpoint, you know, but there are some CRM, I don't want to say based field schools, but there are some places you can go that will give you a better CRM education for the region you want to work in, which is another key thing too. If you want to work on the East coast, go to a field school over there. If you want to work in Arkansas, try to find a field school, at, you know, in the region, at least, um, if you want to work in the West, do the same thing. So, um, you know, maybe you'll, and find out what they're going to teach you as well. Uh, you know, and, and see if it fits with what you'll need. And this is of course, just the very basic level to break in at the tech level. And once he has a job or two, your field school and your degree mean almost nothing. Absolutely. And after that, it becomes the the experience you have and the reputation you have mm-hmm. um, among people you work with in your area. Yeah. So network. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I I think Stephen's um, point about check to see if masters programs, you know, what they require for some sort of background. And I would yeah, if he's really interested definitely go to crm before going into a master's and decide if you actually like crm archaeology uh, before you spend potentially several tens of thousands more and get a degree that you may not actually really like doing the job right i I would um kind of chase that a little bit further if he is going weak as an undergrad um after he gets the experience and starts looking at like a, a grad degree it might be for the best to look at a grad degree that is a little bit more strongly for field um, to kind of bolster the stuff that he's kind of passing up on as the undergrad. Um, whereas if you had the you know undergrad degree, um, you know maybe you just want one of the CRM focused masters, uh, but you know just to make sure that you know I guess full education it, it might be a good idea to uh, go that way. Okay. Well, do we have any final thoughts on this or, uh, before we move to the next one? Good luck. <laughs> uh, nice. I, I think, you know, uh, considering how many archaeologists, uh, you know, just end up starting their own businesses and don't necessarily mm-hmm. have uh, business degrees, I think that uh, <laughs> um, having, story. Yeah, ha- having like a business degree might, might actually help, uh, you know. Oh. I, I, I think... I would have to say, yes, it has to help. How could it not? And from my standpoint, I mean, there, there's so many things that I'm probably doing wrong from a business standpoint, and I'm not even aware of the fact that I'm doing them wrong. You know what I mean? Until they yeah. until they totally bite me in the ass at some point. So, uh, you know, hopefully, I don't know, maybe it will help. And I, I'd give one last piece of advice just looking at what he had wrote. Um, he'd said, you know, my main interest is doing field work, so I think an anthro degree could be used if I ever want to keep quiet about having a master's and just do field work. Um, I think we've touched on it, but we should probably explain in greater detail. A master's actually, you need in many parts of the United States a master's to do field work. Mm-hmm. So there's, we had mentioned this, but I realize he may not real, uh, know this, but uh, the Secretary of Interior has regulations and governs most archaeological work and they basically require a master's to run projects and depending on the state each state will have uh, permits that you need which is experience but it is also having that master's so if you if he does go on to get a master's you absolutely depending on where you're working in the united states and if you're going to do any work for any sort of government agency um, you need that master's if you ever hope to move up and 
lots of people have masters and still do tech work. Lots of people have PhDs and still start out doing tech work. Right. So there's no there's no real advantage of sort of quote unquote hiding your higher degrees, um, even for tech work, because I I've found a lot of people like to even if you have a master's start people out and then they're very happy to have someone that has that that degree so that when work comes along or they have the opportunity they can slot them in higher up as a project manager um and hiding that i don't do you guys have any thoughts on that but i don't think hiding yeah, the degrees don't, really think, help it's almost more of a problem going the other direction that uh there aren't that many slots for people with masters and there are, is an ever uh, growing number of people with masters. So yeah, I, th I think you're finding a certain amount of bottleneck where the masters isn't holding them back. Um, the, the lack of jobs is kind of holding them back. You know, and, and one of the things I'll just tidy up this with uh, a final comment too, and say, again, what Doug said and, and what we said throughout is research the region you would likely try to work in you know if you want to jump all over the country that's one thing but if you want to focus on a certain region find out what their requirements are you know same with the field school and with the permitting and things like that because for example a notoriously difficult area to get to work in is the great basin in nevada however there are ways to get around the master's degree requirement for project management in nevada and that's experience uh, it's kind of crazy but they have experience levels that are equate to um, for the PI level, the principal investigator level, where you can experience out of a graduate degree. So, you know, notoriously hard region to work in. However, if you work there long enough, you can still move up in the world and, and keep doing that. Now, there's other glass ceiling type things if you don't have a master's degree, but maybe those aren't a concern to you. So, um, you know, if you just want to work and, and move up within a company and a chain, you can probably do that here. Uh, in the Great Basin, but like I said, look at the area like Doug said and and Stephen said, and figure out what their requirements are and what you really need. So, all right, I think we're going to move on to the next email, but first we're going to hear about another podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. See you in a minute. Profiles in CRM, a weekly podcast. Ask CRM professionals eight simple questions. The first questions establish education, location, and experience. The last questions are a reflection of that experience, and the answers will surprise you. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash profiles. On that page, you can also request to be interviewed for the show. It only takes 20 minutes, and you don't need any special equipment. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back with one more email, and let me read that off, and then we're going to talk about it. All right, Chris and the gang. I've been listening to the show for a few months now and have to say, you guys rock. I am just getting started with CRM, and every show, blog, and book of yours that I've read has been insanely helpful, so that's awesome. Episode 63 in particular, um, I actually applied to the job that you mentioned, and two was th a bit thrown off by the posting, but sent it off anyway since I live in Ohio and California winters don't sound so bad. Anyway, this afternoon I had a phone interview for said job, and even though I've only had a few CRM interviews, I caught a weird vibe, and I wanted to check with you to see if this is the norm. We talked about the standard stuff, company overview, my resume and experience, etc. Uh, then she basically gave me an oral archaeology exam. Some of the questions included, one, tell me about debitage and what are the three types of cortex. Two, how can you identify historic sites. Three, 
What are the differences between petroglyphs and pictographs? Four, tell me about lithics. Five, <laughs> I like tell me about lithics. Five, other than extreme temperatures and wildlife, what types of hazards can you expect to find in the field? And then he continues, I don't mean to complain that I was given an actual job interview, but at the same time, I was definitely thrown off seeing as it's a temporary entry-level, four-week-long field tech position with no per diem. I know this isn't standard, but quite honestly, I choked on a few of the questions, and I'm seriously doubting myself now. Would you consider doing a segment on interviews? So that last part is the actual question. So first off, let me back up just a little bit. If you go check out episode 63, at the bottom of the links, there's a link to the Shovel Bums posting for this job, and they had a lot of stuff that none of us had ever really seen before in a job posting, some really specific requirements for people to have knowledge of. Um, and it was... It was extremely specific and it, what makes it even crazier is it's for a four-week position it's not like you're applying to be a pi or a project manager or something where you're going to be there for a while and have to know these things for report writing and it's a field tech position so i understand asking somebody how to identify a historic site and whether or not they know about debitage and cortex and things like that and out here you really should know the difference between a pictograph and a petroglyph but that being said um, none of those questions were actually in the job posting. That was extra stuff that they threw in for the interview. So the question here is, would you consider doing a segment on interviews? And I think one of the things that, um, you know, I've got a blog post that's ready to drop on this that I haven't put out yet. But one of the things is, how can you predict what's going to be in your interview? Okay. How can you predict what kind of questions they're going to ask? Well, the short answer is you can't you know, they'll ask the, the standard questions, which if you've done enough interviews, you'll know those, you'll know those things. But one of the ways I was thinking of that you can do to, to figure out what's going to be in your interview is to simply post something out on say Facebook or something like that. Talk to your friends first, maybe see if anybody's actually worked for this company and see what kind of questions they ask in the interview. I would caution people about putting stuff on say Archeo Field Techs on Facebook because there's over 1500 people on there. And there's a half a chance that the person at this company is you know, a part of that group and they'll see this and maybe they won't like that. I don't know. Maybe they will. Who knows? Um, but that's one of the ways I can think of to prepare for an interview is to find people who have actually gone through the interview process with this company and ask them what it's like. So I'll open it up to Doug and Steven now and see what you guys think about this and interviews in general. Guys? To start out by talking about this specific interview, <clears throat> it really sounds like they wanted something very specific and they didn't want to spend any time or effort training that individual uh, um and uh you know because it sounds like okay the, basically what they expect to find are lithic scatters rock art sites and um they wanted someone who's familiar with trump tromping around in the outdoors in, in that particular location right so an archaeologist um, <clears throat> well an archaeologist <laughs> from that area yeah gotten out of the city whatever that kind of describes the whole west coast but you know it's all right you know i mean tell me what are the three types of cortex i'm not sure i could answer that that's an interesting question yeah types of cortex that's pretty specific question it's like i I can talk about you know i I mean does does like patina patination count as a cortex i I have no idea you know like you know when you're getting that technical about it right know know what patination is you know um, you know, are you looking at like the parent surrounding material? What are, what are we talking about here? And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. So I don't know how to, you know, how I would answer that. But you know, I can see how it would lead to a, 
a discussion about lithics. Um, you know, how can you identify historic sites? You know, what kind? Buildings? Right. You know, archaeology sites? You know, what are we talking about? Um, and, and then, you know, I, I think I actually kind of like the fifth question. Um, you know, what are types of hazards you can expect to find in the field? Because that's something you want to be aware of. Um, <clears throat> that said, you know, none of these should really be uh, deal breakers because they are so specific. Right. That, you know, even if you kind of, you know, boff it, it's like, what are three types of cortex? I don't know. You know, even types of material you get, what are the types of cortex? Yeah. You know, what, what can I expect to see? Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, if they're actually using this to weed out someone or, or, you know, do they want a field tech who can actually do it like advanced lithic analysis? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's, that's kind of crummy. Um, I, I think that they're really, you know, aiming above what, you know, the grade that they're trying to hire. Yeah. I and, think that's and, the, that's the big part of it. Yeah, and, and that's not that's not cool. Uh, but I, I think that as an introduction to the sorts of things that you know a potential candidate might have to be involved with, you know, I, I, I'm I'm okay with the idea of like finding out what they know and what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so and and using that to kind of guide the discussion or you know get them up to speed. Yeah, I think you. I mean, you're totally right. Is it's they're not appropriate questions for for a field technician, especially a temporary one. You know, if you were hiring somebody with the thought of uh, possibly moving them up, or maybe you're one of those smaller companies where a field tech is going to do you know more than standard field tech type work. Like you know, when they're not in the field, maybe they're helping out with some report writing or something like that, and that's what they're looking for. I don't think they said that in the job post, but maybe internally that's what they're thinking. Uh, even then. You know, maybe maybe they should be more explicit about that, so there isn't all this ambiguity and all this confusion as to why a four week long tech position with no per diem, mind you. So they're really looking for local people, uh, which is ridiculous because um, there are no local archaeologists here. But uh, you know, maybe they're—I I don't know—I don't know what they're looking for. Doug, what do you got to say on this? So I've taken a look at the job uh, job posting and looking at the questions and stuff. I sort of see this being slightly different. So I, I went and looked at the website of the company that posted this. Yeah. And they are, they're not an archaeology company. They're a very large, um, you know, technology, business, consulting firm. Yeah. And what so when you look at the job posting, it's actually fairly standard, you know, bachelor's degree, year of experience, um, the, the job duties probably goes into a lot more detail than most uh, field tech stuff. And then until you, at the bottom, additional information, you know, having to walk eight miles, stuff like that, mm-hmm. all very standard. Uh, I think you guys were talking about how there's all this stuff about like required knowledge, required skills, required abilities. Yeah. And you actually see a lot of that postings outside of archaeology and in big organizations. So a lot of universities have postings just like that because it's a professional HR um, thing. And those questions sound a lot like 
a larger company HR system where basically they do sort of, I've seen it and I have a lot of friends in different fields and they'll do like mini tests for, you know, to be an analyst at an oil company or something like that. And that's basically what that sounds with. And that, and that's basically a lot what you find in very large companies. I imagine the person who's actually doing the hiring, this is possibly have gone through like their HR department. And so that's why you end up with all these sort of over detailed descriptions. Whereas in archaeology, you know, most of the companies tend to be small. It's a small field. Everyone knows. You can just say, hey, I need a field tech for Tuesday. And most people understand the skills required. Right. But in a large organization, they might not even have any archaeologists on staff. Um, they mo- or the person who wrote this might not be an archaeologist. They were just doing an HR thing. And this, these questions, these sort of quizzes, sounds definitely like a large company sort of test where they, they actually don't know anything about archaeology. And so they're just doing sort of a, a weed-out test. Mm-hmm. And that's that's exactly what it sounds like. And I'm not sure if there's much you can do to prepare for that. Because um, typically most interviews for, well, let's be honest, most field tech uh, jobs are not really interviews. There's more of a phone call saying, so I see you have experience and you can start on Friday or Monday. <laughs> um, here are the details of the project. Can you do with that? Right. Um, you very rarely would... I don't know. Have you guys ever gone through? So I know I went through my first, my first field tech position. I actually went through a sit down interview, but that was because it was through a, a CR company, CRM company that was part of the university. So they had to, they're again, a large organization mm-hmm. required them to do an interview because of HR policies. Um, but have you guys ever actually been interviewed for a field tech position? Yes. Yes, I have. My first one. I, actually, my second one, but um, I, I did get interviewed. It was a very informal interview, and it was you know, really simple questions about my experience. Uh, you know, had I ever done surface survey? Um, had I ever found anything during surface survey? Um, you know, questions like that, which, which were very relevant to the position at hand. So... Um, I, I did. I did actually have to uh, answer a few questions. Yeah, I don't think I've ever actually been interviewed for a field tech position. Um, you know, I've had some some fairly in depth phone calls that felt like interviews, but they never really said they were interviews. That I feel like they were fishing for information. You know, without without being direct about it. You know, we just had a conversation, and then at the end, they're like, "Well, can you come on this project?" I I, I don't know if. I don't know if it if I'd answered questions differently, they'd have, they'd have been like, "Well, it's good talking to you," <laughs> you know, and hung up the phone. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah so we'll you know, call you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, so I had that one. Then yeah, I've had a couple uh, of the phone call type just conversations where it's kind of mm-hmm. a get to know you um, sort of thing. And then I, I I don't think I had any more interviews until I was going for like a field supervisor position, which was in. MA level position, so exactly, um, and and there you start getting like actual interviews. Yeah, you know, so yeah, they're not messing around with those. So you, you do often get 
I, I, I would say unless you're hired internally, you're almost every time going to get interviewed for a position like that. Unless it's somebody you know that already knows everything about you and a spot opened up and they just bring you on, you know, there's that. But if you don't know the company, you don't know who's working there, you're probably getting interviewed for an upper level position, anything over field tech or even crew chief, really. Well, not, I, yeah. I just did uh, this spring, no, this winter, uh, past winter, I did a lot of uh, just getting to know you interviews mm-hmm. where I sent out my CV and they're like, well, we don't have any positions, but why don't you come in, you know, have a coffee and we'll, we'll talk. Yeah. Uh, and and what was interesting is I noticed a few, um, it, it took me forever, um, far too late to pick up on this, but it, I noticed a few uh, uh, trends in that. And and one of, what, one of them is everybody took a look at my CV said, wow, you have a lot of experience. Um, but none of them really read the CV. <laughs> uh, you know, because like uh, on the skills section, you know, flat out said GIS. Yeah. And, and here, apparently GIS is, is still at a premium. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is a major, major plus to a, an upper level um, skill set. Um, because most of the uh, people my age or older don't have it. Hmm. Um, and, and it would come up in the conversation, like last question, as we're all standing up, like two or three times, two, two or three different interviews, yeah, it came yeah. up at the end. And it wasn't until later that I realized it's because, you know, A, nobody bothered to read all the way to the skills section of my CV. Um, they probably didn't understand when I said, talked about like doing geospatial data in my cover letter. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I take it as a kind of a given. Um, that, you know, like, of course, well, I know how to use GIS, you know, it's, it's 2015, you know, GIS has been around for quite a while. Um, <laughs> and, and it took me a while to catch on that. No, no, up here, it's, it's a lot more like 1997. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit more rare. So, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in with like your whole comment about how people don't really read the the CVs. So right now, Tristan, one of our other podcast people, mm-hmm. is applying for jobs over here in the UK, and he's I'm helping him do a CV, and a good description, which probably does not translate well over you know a podcast, <laughs> is when you're doing your your CV, you're actually making it to pass the eye test, and the eye test is, you know, you want to fill out enough information on your job so it looks you know you have experience but after two or three pages people are going to flip through they'll look at the first you know couple of lines they'll look at the headers of you know jobs and then those extra two or three pages are mainly there to look nice Mm -hmm. um and if people really are interested in you they'll read deeper but you really are i find most people when they're doing cvs it's the eye test it's don't have a whole string of nothing but bullet points because that actually looks ugly. But if you have bullet points and paragraphs, it, it, it looks like a nice something to read. And that's yeah. what you're actually looking for is someone to look at your CV and say, huh, couple of pages? This looks like a nice read. I'm going to call them. Um, not necessarily that they're actually going to read it in every detail. And even if they do read through it in every detail, they're probably going to forget. And so... Um, this is sort of bringing it back to the interview advice is if there's a skill that you have that you has not been brought up and they ask you that question of, Oh, do you have any questions? 
that is the perfect time to try to highlight the skills that you haven't talked about that you think are important because they might not have read that far into your CV or they may not have even picked up those skills. So, um, you know, in uh, Stephen's case, so Stephen, if you don't mind, I'm going to use you. Um, if Stephen wanted to highlight his GIS skills at the end of the interview, he could have been something like, oh, yeah, so I have, um, you know, GIS skills. What sort of programs do you use for GIS? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you're really angling for a job and you're like, so um, in my previous work, I've done a lot of, you know, going out and applying for jobs and putting in bids. Is there an opportunity to do that um, in this job? And so there's always that chance to like try to highlight anything that, you know, hasn't brought up that you think might be of use because there is a good chance that one, they've gone through 20 or 30 or 40 CVs and they all start to look the same after a while. Um, or they just briefly gave yours a look and it looked, it passed the eye test. You looked like you had a couple of years of experience. <laughs> they flipped through, they've seen that you have work going back to, you know, 1996 or 2006 or even just 2013, whatever. And they know you have a couple of years of experience. Um, and that's probably all that they're really looking for. And I mean, Chris, you've, you've done hiring. What, how, what's your process for when you go through? Well, it's a little different for, for me because, um, you know, the hiring I've done at other companies was, was usually they just, I got handed the list of people that were already weeded out But hiring for my own company. Uh, since I'm so new in the business and this is actually good to know, I mean, it's really been all networking. Um, I haven't had to put out a blanket call for jobs, uh, for people for a job because, I, I knew people that wanted to work here and, and they happen to be available at certain times or, you know, friend of a friend kind of thing comes highly recommended and I haven't had to put out a mass call for people I just simply don't know. So probably not a good one to ask on that, but it's a good thing to know, you know, networking is a, is a strong tool in this field. And, and while I'm, while I'm on this, I think, um, Doug, you're making some really good points there about the interview and things like that. But I think the larger point that we're making here regarding interviews from a field tech standpoint is it's really not in the interview it's in your cv like doug is saying make sure your cv is one that stands out and gets you noticed and and get you because i will totally agree with that if i had to i have had to look through cvs before um not necessarily doing interviews but just glancing through them and it really is like you come across one that just is poorly formatted and doesn't look right you just assume that you know, well, first off, you don't have the time to go through all of them. And the second thing is, I, I would assume that probably the rest of their work is similar and I would toss it. I probably wouldn't even read it. I probably wouldn't even know who they were. It just looks like crap. It's going in the trash, right? If you didn't even try in that point, it's going in the trash. So, um, yeah, I'll agree with you, Doug, on your CV, how you how it looks. And, and then more importantly, not more importantly, but next in importance is how it reads. Because if they like how it looks there's a decent chance that they might be reading it soon <laughs> or at least some of it. But, and I will echo what you said too. Uh, when I first got into archeology span and then for the first few years, I always assumed, but by the time I was in the field, everybody knew what I had for experience. Well, in the leadership, you know, the crew chiefs or project manager, whoever was out there from the company, they knew all my skills. They knew everything. But in reality, they didn't know anything. They absolutely didn't know anything because they didn't read. They they likely didn't even see my CV. They were just handed a list of people and said, "Here you go. This is your crew." So if you want those things highlighted, you got to do what Doug says, which is you know, tell them if you want to 
highlight the fact that you know how to use a piece of equipment, you have to tell them, hey, I know how to use that and jump in there and do it. So, um, Stephen. Um, yeah, well, I, I do actually have a lot of experience hiring people um, and, and looking at CVs. We, we've had to pull out, put out a lot of calls on, uh, um, you know, just one of the requirements, even if it was, um, you know, people that other employees knew, already knew, or, or um, you know, fellow professionals, you know, like uh, some instructors that I know, like they had some students who were looking for it, I'd have them send me a CV. Um, and generally at the field tech level, I, I would just, you know, skim it to see what your field work is, field work experiences. If, you know, you, your job, your work experience wasn't all, wasn't field work experience. I kind of skimmed it, um, you know, because it wasn't really relevant. Uh, you know, so basically looked at, you know, what projects you had worked on, if you'd done field work, um, whether you had a field school, because sometimes field schools weren't mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, if so, which field school was it, who was it with? And then, you know, I always went with uh, um, references. Uh, and, and I would spend, actually spend more time talking to um, the, the referees than, than the applicants. Right. Um, part, partly because, you know, a lot of times when you talk to someone who has no field experience except for a field school, you can actually get a better feel for how they're going to do from from the refer- from the the referees. Um, you know, those are people with experience who know what you're expecting, or hopefully know what you're expecting, and you know can actually give an informed comment about mm-hmm. you know what they want. Um, you know, whereas in, in a few times that I've talked to people who are applying, they're like, "Yeah, I, I want to go. I want to work in the field." <laughs> You know, I'm really excited about this. And it's like, yeah. good, yes, you should be. And, and, you know, but there's not a lot of, you know, substance, especially since it was kind of across the board. So, sometimes, you know, I would talk about what their field school is like, um, stuff like that. But <laughs> someone's leaping on my keyboard here. Yeah, I see. Um, I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so it's interesting that coming out of it as someone who has looked at a large number of CVs and, and cover letters and, and stuff like that, that, um, yeah, you know, that people weren't necessarily reading mine in the same way that I normally read them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause I, I would be interested in, in what sort of it, not just, you know, like how many pages you have of experience, but what sort of experience do you have? And, and, you know, in my most recent job, it flat out said GIS as far as like, you know, some of the job duties. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that, you know, they weren't looking apparently at all, um, it was kind of intriguing. You know, they, they really were kind of going by the pound and, uh, um, yeah, you know, so, so, you know, I, I'm not complaining at all. I, I think it should just be, you know, that's, that's a cautionary tale, right. You know, that, right. um, don't make the same mistakes I made. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing is, I wasn't going for a GIS job. I wasn't going for any job. I was just getting to know them. And it really didn't occur to me that people don't know how to use GIS. Well, you know, I want to ask you a question. I want to jump back a little bit. Uh, you mentioned how you got more information talking to their um, to the referees that they had, um, the people that referred them. And, you know, I've always thought that, and again, you have a lot more experience in this, so tell me. I've always thought that references were kind of a little bit BS sometimes because 
from me, why would I put somebody down as my references that isn't going to speak highly of me, right? So it almost seems like it's a biased opinion from the from the get go. Did you ever call a reference where the person was like, you know, you got a bad vibe from talking to that person about the person that was trying to get hired for the job, or you oh, know, yeah. okay, absolutely, so, man. Why would people put those guys down on their, they don't <laughs> on their list? Anybody else? I guess. Right? No, no, it's it's it's. Um, well, one, I actually did get an honest to God, bad reference once. Um, really? And, and this is pretty rare yeah. where, um, you know, basically I have like standard five, five or six questions, you know, how do you, how, you know, what was your relationship with this person? Um, what were the job duties that this person performed? Uh, you know, what, what were these person's strengths? What were these, you know, perfect person's weaknesses? Would you hire this person again? That's the golden question. Yeah. And, um, you know, here, here's a description of my project. In your opinion, do you think this person could do it? And and that one was kind of a one-off because, you know, half the time they're like, I can't answer that for, you know, liability issues. Um, I've heard that know, before, a lot, yeah. A lot, of pe- a lot of people aren't going to put themselves out, out on a limb to, you know, guess whether they can do this job. And and that's fair. Um, but I actually, you know, so I would basically I just cut and paste this the, these questions and, and mm-hmm. just send them email. Because, you know, I'm sifting through 20, 30 um, CVs. And th- that's the short list, right? Yeah. So, you know, and I just fire them off. And and then I fired, basically I had one reference. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try to tell this story without naming names. Mm-hmm. Basically, the guy had like 10, refer- 10 references on his CV. And I looked at the list and... Maybe two thirds, four fifths down the list is someone I know. Oh. And I'm like, oh, hey. But the contact information was clearly old because this person had changed positions. Yeah. You know, in recent years. And I was like, oh, no problem. So I just fired off the email to the current email address. And 20 seconds later, the phone rings. <laughs> and it's like, as soon as the phone rings, because, you know, nobody ever calls me, it's like, oh, <laughs> Oh, this is going to be good, and, and, you know, because if the, if they're calling, this is kind of the you know <clears throat> off the record sort of speech, right? Right. Uh, and, and and pick up the phone, and and, and the guy's like, not only uh, won't I be a reference, but I you know, I I can only give a bad reference for this person. In yeah. fact, when he asked if I could would be a reference, I told him no. Hmm. And here's why, and just went into a long laundry <laughs> list of how this person, you know, and, and like giving details about what this person did on his project and, yeah. you know, and, and stuff like that. Um, that was the only bad reference, like honestly bad reference that I've had. Hmm. Um, the trick for references are, you know, given that nobody gives a bad reference, but nobody wants to lie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if the person's not that good, you don't want to lie. But at the same time, it's like you, you really want this, you know, I mean, nine times out of ten, you really want this person to get a job. Um, because if, if you didn't want this person to get a job, you just would have said no. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and, and there are a few where, you know, this person was kind of weak, but this is their first job. And, and so, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you things and, and they'll kind of hedge their bets. You know, they'll kind of they'll qualify things. That um, One of the uh, things I would regularly pick up on is if they 
kept to the answer and didn't elaborate. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, what did this person do? This person was a student. You know, what were the job duties? Like this, uh, this person took my field school, um, you know, and they didn't talk about the field school at all or how this person did at the field school. Yeah. And it's like, what were the strengths? And, and you know, uh, pretty much everything. What were the weaknesses? None that I can think of. <laughs> you know, and it's like really short answers. That, that is a mm-hmm. guaranteed way not to get your guy hired. <laughs> um, and, and, and it was like, yeah, you know, and I've had several of those where it's like yeah. you're not you're answering the questions, but you're really not answering the questions. You're not telling me anything about this person. Yeah, they didn't stand out or they don't want them to stand out. Right. And and basically yeah. it's like I, I I will tell you the bare minimum to be a good reference. So mm-hmm. that maybe you will hire this person, but I will not tell you anything, you know, qualitatively about about the candidate. Right. Um that that's usually a red flag. Um you know, if, you know, I, I've had quite a few where, you know, it's it's the phone call return, where you send out the email and the phone rings. Mm-hmm. That's usually a red flag because it's usually like, well, let me tell you a little bit about this person. Yeah. And, and, and it's usually not bad, but there's just a couple things you ought to know about this person before you hire them. Just so you know, you know, just want to be clear that, yeah, um, and, and they're not bad. But they're, you know, it's it, it's enough to make you a little uneasy. Um, you know, I, on the other hand, I, I've had some where you know they call back and they're like, "I read the first question, you know, the first sentence of your email, and I'm not going to read the rest because let me tell you, if you don't hire her, you are incredibly stupid." Nice. And it's like, okay, that's a plus. Yeah. You know, right there, like you know, the you are stupid for not hiring this person is a good. Re- good reference and if you can give details all the better you know because because my response then is oh really so what did this person do for you and and i run through the questions manually um and usually they have good response uh so yeah and kind of you know so there's like qual qualified responses where you start to pick up on that might not be a good candidate Mm -hmm. and you don't know but, but that's the problem is it was the referee's job to, you know, remove the doubt. And, and they yeah. didn't. Um, and, and I will say that there is a certain type of reference um, that you need to be warned about uh, if, you're, if you're doing a lot of hiring because they only give critical references. And those are doctoral candidates. Oh. Doctoral candidates cannot give a fully positive reference for the life of them. <laughs> I, and, and I can't tell you how I like I had one where one candidate, uh, like the only two references that he had that counted um, for field work is uh, were both uh, like grad grad student um, leaders at his field school and they tore him a new one. Wow. And, and, and it was it was like, you know, he's probably not actually this bad. You know, maybe he is. Uh, you know, I, I can't say, but that's the problem. Is that, you know, I, I feel really, I kind of feel bad for the kid because, you know, if I had to, if I had to guess, he's probably not this bad. But they were in review mode. Mm-hmm. You know, let me critique his performance, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that's that's what you do in grad school. You critique oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. And it's like, and and actually, I had one friend who, um, 
you know, uh, uh, actually gave a not very positive um, reference for a candidate. And, you know, but actually went into enough detail. So I called her up and I'm like, hey, um, you know, let's talk about this. And, and basically the negative experiences were the sorts of things that couldn't possibly happen on the type of field project that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, you know, it, it's like, so if you're being a reference, think about what they're applying for when, when you talk about their performance, because just because they were bad at one particular thing doesn't make them bad at everything. Yeah. Right. And, and, um, yeah. So, um, got to be a bit of a connoisseur about, about, uh, references over the years. Um, and and then the other thing is, and experienced, experienced hires, hires will understand this and people who, who are experienced at giving reviewer, uh, references will will understand this is not every performance isn't static mm-hmm. that you know if, if someone just only had a field school and, and your job was their first job you know possibly their actual first job not just their field job right first job ever you, you know you know sometimes it's like well you know to be honest they weren't that great but you know, I'm I'm willing to give them a little bit of a doubt. You know, just on the basis that they were really green. Yeah. And you know, they had trouble finding their footing. And and you know, because I've had I've had pe- people who worked for me, and they were kind of lackluster. You know, not not blatantly horrible, but yeah, maybe a little unmotivated. Maybe you know, not not a lot of you know self drive. You know, a little mm-hmm. slow. Um and and. You know, and then they get hired off and I give one of those qualified, you know, references where, you know, they're not horrible, but they're not all that great. And <laughs> and, and then, you know, a couple of years down the road, I hear from the people who hire them. And they're like, oh, yeah, that, that person's so awesome. We made her a crew chief. Nice. And it's like, really? Wow. You know, because I had no idea how this person would develop. Yeah, people change. And, and you know, so I, I kind of always had that, like, I don't want to screw anybody's career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, there. I've had some people who just blatantly shouldn't be doing it, but um, you know, for the most part, if they're if it's just that they're new and they're weak, yeah, you know, it's like it, I, I would feel really bad just destroying their career just on the basis that you know it took them a little longer to to ramp up. Um, but at the same time, I can't tell you that they were great because it took yeah. them a little, you know. So uh, be, just saying, you know, hey, it was their first job and they were pretty green. You know, that kind of explains the whole situation and puts it back on the hirer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, do you want to take a chance with this green person or not? And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Okay. Well, I think that was an amazing talk about references because um, I've always had somewhat of a misconception about them. I, I never thought that somebody would put a, a bad references a reference down. I do know that people do... Uh, leave old ones on there that they probably shouldn't do. That's probably something you should check. You should always constantly be refreshing those if you can. If you can't, well, you know, time to start thinking about other things. I, I will tell that's one thing you need to think about is um, <clears throat> every year, check the contact information. Right. Yeah. Or, or you know, if, if, if there's enough space between applications, check check your check your contact information for your reference and make sure that they still want to do it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes it's, it's, you know, every once in a while you get a, oh man, you know, that person worked for me three years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I've, I've had phone calls like that where it's like, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what this person did. Yeah. You know, I, I remember this person favorably, but then they're asking detailed questions about their experience. And it's like, yeah, I honestly don't remember because it was three years ago and you just called me out of the blue. Nice. Um, yeah. So uh, do check in. Also, you know, if, if your references is a uh, professor and, you know, might be, I don't know, going abroad for fieldwork for six months, <laughs> maybe you want to consider getting somebody different. Yeah. Who could possibly have internet. <laughs> right. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and Doug is messaging here and I'm going to bring it back to interviews as well real quick. Um, I think honestly, the point that we've made here is that there's a few things you can do to sort of prepare for an interview if you're going to get one, but most likely you're not going to get one. So make sure everything else is up to snuff. Um, Doug, wrap us up and bring this back to interviews. Yeah. I was just going to say that um, we, we kind of moved away from, you know, CVs and stuff like that, but that's, um, in terms of preparing for an interview, I think uh, Stephen's hit it on the head, and you've as well, Chris. Is um, at the very bottom level, you're most likely going to get sort of an informal filling out phone call, and very rarely, unless it's required by sort of HR, um, like a big organization, or you know, I shouldn't say that. There might be some people who really want to sit down and do a sit down interview, but in terms of the entry level tech, mm-hmm. you know. Most of it, you're calling people who are hundreds of miles away to see if they're going to come over. You're not going to do interviews. You're going to get sort of a a phone call to feel you out. And just going back to the CVs, people or resumes, people don't really read them. So if you're thinking of like possible questions that you might be asked, don't be surprised if they ask you stuff that you think is blatantly obvious. Like they might ask you, so what's your current job right now? Or what's your last job, your last uh, CRM job? And you might be thinking, well, did you not read my my CV? And they may have or they may not have, but um, just be prepared for questions that you might think are blatantly obvious, but will probably catch people up because some people will be yeah. like, they'll ask you, you know, how many years of experience? You're like, wait, how, how many years of experience do I have? I, I put this on my resume. It should be there. You should know this. <laughs> and they don't really ever answer the question because they assume – that you know the person who's asking it should already know that that information, right. um, and probably when you get to higher levels, there's a whole we should do a whole other podcast on interviews when it's like formal and for supervisor positions and stuff. Yeah, we really should. We should put that on the list of our podcasts to do. Um, that's, I've been thinking about that this whole time too, when we were thinking about this. So uh, maybe we'll do that one. Uh, in the next couple episodes. So, all right, though, I think for this one, we're going to call it. Um, I'm going to have at the end of this episode, at the end of the credits, actually, uh, a giveaway that we're doing um, that the Archaeology Podcast Network is doing to highlight our profiles in CRM podcast. So stay to the end of the credits to listen to that, and we'll see you on the next podcast. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. 
links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast or you can tag at ARCpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Adios. Bye. <laughs> Jesus. You guys, you're both are trying to be the last one. <laughs> you can't both be This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Okay, I'm back. And as I mentioned before, we've got a special promotion. So DigTech ended up with a couple extra iPads, some of the brand new ones, the iPad Mini 4s. And I want to give one of them away. And I also need interviews for profiles in CRM. I've somewhat tapped out all the people that are close to me and that I know, and I need more interviews. So I'm going to put the call out and say, send me some names. But first, what are you going to win? So it's an iPad Mini 4. Those just came out about two weeks ago. 16 gigabytes, uh, space gray, AT&T cellular enabled. You you don't need a data plan, but it it can take one through AT&T. Um, and the reason I have that is because that gives you the GPS antenna and I use that all the time. So the GPS antenna works without the data plan. So how do you get an entry? Well, you get an entry by doing an interview. Uh, send me your name, send me your contact info, and we'll do an interview. When the interview is recorded, your entry goes in the thing, uh, goes on the list. Uh, let's see. You can also get an entry if you were a previous interviewee and you send me a name. So if the person contacts me, say, hey, I was recommended by this person, and you as a previous interviewee will also get an entry. So um, if you come on as a new person and recommend somebody, that's two entries, and you'll get an entry for each person you recommend if you were interviewed prior. So, And international is okay as well. I would love to have some international CRM folks out there. All right, so this promotion runs from October 1st to December 15th. At that point, I will pick a winner. Here's another catch, though. I want 40 interviews before we pick an inter- pick a winner. I don't want to have two people get interviewed and then have to choose between them because the goal is to get interviews here. So I want you guys to send me some names, and we'll get this going. All right? Good luck to everybody, and I'll keep you informed as to how many we're up to. All right. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info.